Amen. That is great. Thank you. Well, good morning. I'm Ken Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, filling in for Pastor Jeff, who just completed a pastor's conference in Guatemala and will be returning this week. And so I have the privilege of, of opening God's Word for us this morning. So uh, let me offer a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your Word, how very fresh and relevant it is. Um, that we can read your word in one hand and the newspaper in the other and, and uh, just recognize that you're at work. And so I pray that as we turn to your word this morning, that you would speak to us through your word, encourage us, help us to uh, be strengthened by it, that we might live for you this week uh, and be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've looked at the bulletin, you've seen that my title this morning is Inauguration. We are a week and a half away from the inauguration of America's 45th president. I don't know how that makes you feel, but I want to assure you that Scripture is not silent on such things. I also want to assure you that this is not a sermon about the inauguration of an American president. This is a message about the inauguration of another leader, one who is ruler over presidents, ruler over kings, one whose authority is uh, unchallengeable, one whose kingdom will never end. That is what we celebrate here this morning. There is one who is in control, even when everything around us may seem totally out of control. When I uh, read the New Testament and what it says about our relationship to governing authorities, it, it does amaze me. Because I, I read in Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul telling us to subject ourselves to governing authorities. I read in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul tells us to pray for those who are in authority over us. And I realize who was in authority when Paul wrote those things. It, it was a mild-mannered little guy named Nero, who uh, reigned from AD 37 to 68, and who blamed the Christians uh, for the fire that consumed much of Rome in AD 64, and it would be Nero under whose reign the Apostle Paul would eventually be executed. And yet the Apostle Paul encourages us to subject ourselves to the rulers and authorities and pray for them. You see, when the biblical writers would write about such things, they were aware of another ruler who was over these earthly rulers one who was working out eternal purposes that go beyond what we can see and understand, even in the midst of great turbulence. And so as we approach the inauguration of a new president, uh, some people are in the pits of depression while others are positively giddy. And a lot of people are just plain nervous. <laughs> but here's what we need to understand. Rulers come and rulers go. And it's God who sets them up, and it's God who takes them down. Our king reigns in heaven. He is sovereign. He is in control. And he will one day reign again on earth. And until then, we live as what one author called pessimistic optimists. 
Uh, we are people who are not unaware of what's going on around ourselves. We recognize that things aren't getting better. We understand that things aren't going to get better until Christ steps back onto the stage of human history and establishes his kingdom on earth. Someone said it, well, I read the back of the book and we win. But I need to tell you here this morning that it's not just the back of the book that tells us that. The whole book tells us that. That is the theme of this book from cover to cover, the victory of Christ and his kingdom. And uh, so we're going to turn to the middle of the book and see that we win. We're going to look at Psalm 2 today. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to Psalm 2. And we're going to read together this, this fascinating passage. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The author of Psalm 2 doesn't identify himself. When you look at the heading of a lot of Psalms, you'll see some word about the setting. You'll also often see who the author is. Uh, Psalm 2 doesn't do that here, but Acts 4 does. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and tell, uh, 26, it tells us who the author of Psalm 2 is. There it is. Through the mouth of our father David, said by the Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? So a quote of Psalm 2 directly attributed to David. It is David, the man after God's own heart. David, the man whose dynasty, God said, would lead to the ultimate king, the Messiah. That is the author. And the psalm is interesting in its structure. It's written in four stanzas, three verses each. Each of the four stanzas has a different speaker. Uh, the speaker of the first stanza is the nations raging against God. The speaker of the second stanza is God the Father. Third stanza, God the Son. Fourth stanza, God the Spirit. And so we're going to look at these four stanzas of this hymn this morning each in turn. First, the voice of the nations, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So, who are we talking about here? Who are these kings of the earth? Who are these rulers that he's speaking about? Well, it's obviously people who are leaders of, of nations, but 
When we think about leaders of nations, we're thinking more globally these days, and we think of names that are, are familiar to all of us, Obama, Trump, Putin, Merkel, Kim, Netanyahu. Uh, but in David's day, they didn't have these, these enormous empires yet. Uh, what they had were city-states. And so when you read about David conquering a city, you find that he defeated their king. So instead of mayors, they had kings. And so these kings and rulers are leaders of groupings of people. And we find that they were not elected officials like we're used to seeing, right? These are people who had managed through their own strength simply to grab power. These were people who were in power because they took power, uh, generally from the last guy who occupied that throne and uh, generally did it by taking that person's life. And so these are the earthly powerful, the influential, people forceful enough to take power. And the one thing they have in common, according to this first stanza, is their desire not to be governed by God. God is in the way. God is inconvenient. God wants to impose something on them they don't want imposed on them. They want to do it their way. And sometimes we find ourselves described that way as well, don't we? If we're honest, God and following God sometimes becomes inconvenient, uh, particularly when we're not well acquainted with him and we don't understand that his ways are right. And so it certainly describes us before we come to faith in Christ. We want to live according to our will. We don't want to submit our will to his will. And yet when we do, we find that his will is perfect. So the text says these people set themselves against God and against his anointed one, Hebrew Mashiach. We say Messiah, right? And so they're setting themselves against God and against his Messiah. They see submission to him as bondage, not freedom. And they want to break the chains of their submission to him and live in what they think is freedom. We live in a culture today that could largely be described the same way. People who find God's ways too restrictive. I, I enjoy keeping current with the news. And uh, the fastest way I can do that is just to keep the setting on the dial of my truck uh, on, on a station where I get news. And so I, I get good reception and tune into Wisconsin Public Radio. And I listen to it as I'm driving from point A to point B. And, and the trouble is, by the time I get to point B, I'm often really mad. You know, I'm just really frustrated. Um, and uh, I am hearing things that, that trouble me, and even the way that they're talked about troubles me. Um, and I, I see things that used to be held up as honorable now subjected to scorn. Uh, it is no longer cool at all uh, to maintain one's sexual purity until marriage. Uh, that's just seen as, as a remnant of a bygone day, and now we just have to deal with the disastrous consequences of throwing that aside. And so that's the thing they want to get across, is how to deal with those consequences. And not only that, but we find now financial pressure being brought to bear on people who want to stand on God's Word. Churches that want to make clear from the pulpits what God's Word makes clear. And so churches like that are, are being called uh, um, hateful. Uh, they're being threatened with the loss of their tax-exempt status. Um, 
The state of North Carolina is in the news these days for opposing an executive order that allows people to determine what public bathroom they go into. And because they are standing on what has been honored for centuries, uh, they are being opposed now. And, and it's costing the state of North Carolina millions of dollars of lost revenue in terms of athletic competitions that are now not going to be held in North Carolina and jobs that are being sent out of state now because this is such a hateful place that would dare to stand on Scripture. And at the same time, things that used to be universally condemned are now commended. And if you disagree, you're a hateful person. And we think the world has gone absolutely crazy, but when we think about it, we need to recognize that this is really nothing new. David saw it in his day and wrote about it here. David would write about it again in Psalm 12, where in verse 8 he says, The wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. The world has turned it all around, and the wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. And so David begins stanza one of Psalm two with the question, why? Why? Uh, he, is, he is incredulous. You know, why do the nations rage and plot? It's a rhetorical question. He's not expecting an answer. But he raises the question to show the absolute futility of life apart from God. David says all of the raging, all of the plotting of the nations is in vain, verse 1. They'll never get away with it. It's destined to fail. Victory is guaranteed for Christ and his kingdom. Tina and I have a, a three-year-old grandson who we just love to pieces. Uh, his favorite game is called knockover. Um, he says, Papa, can we play knockover? And knockover is when I sit on the living room floor and he tries to knock me over. And, uh, you know, I just kind of look at him and go, you can't knock me over. And he just toughens up and, and does it all the more. And it's just great. He's, he's a wonderful little guy. But, you know, uh, as three-year-olds sometimes do, he, he sometimes goes into total meltdown. Have you ever seen a three-year-old go into total meltdown? He does that. And, and he just rages against his parents, my daughter and her husband, and, uh, and he wants to break her chains, you know, and anything else he can get his hands on, this vase or, you know, whatever. And, uh, and yet, you know, I can look at that and just kind of laugh because I know he's not going to get away with it. My daughter is tougher than that. You know, she will not allow the house to be run by a little three-year-old, you know, and all of the raging will be in vain. And that really leads us to the second stanza because we see God's response to the raging of stanza one. Stanza number two is the voice of the Father, verses four to six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. God is described here as the one who is seated in the heavens, enthroned in the heavens, the very picture of stability, the very picture of permanence. And he looks at the tirade and he laughs. The best efforts of the earthly powerful are a joke to God. All of the posturing of the mighty looks to him like the, the ranting of a three-year-old. And when God gets done laughing 
Look out, because he is terrifying. He says, uh, as for me, verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That is the uh, ESV's way of, of demonstrating that God is putting himself emphatically into this verse. Um, I think a better translation would, would actually say, I myself have put my king on Zion, my holy hill. I myself have done this. It is God's doing. And so it's not about the earthly powerful and what they're trying to do. It is about God and his eternal purposes that will not be thwarted. In Old Testament prophecy, fulfillment generally comes in two parts. Uh, there is an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. There is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So it's kind of like if you were looking at a mountain range. Um, so kind of picture these peaks, right? Um, you're looking at a mountain range and, and you just see mountains. And you don't know how much distance is between any of them, right? You just kind of see mountains. And it might be easy to assume that they are all one. But when you start trying to get past the first one, you see there's another and there's another. And, and there's distance between them. And, and so in Old Testament prophecy, and, and Psalm 2 is prophetic, um, we find a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, an immediate one and an ultimate one. And this one is pointing to a Davidic king, but the things that are being said about him cannot be possibly fulfilled by a David or a Solomon. It will take someone far greater than one of them to fulfill these words. This is ultimately pointing to the Messiah, Christ. And the Father says, I have set him, my son, on Zion, my holy hill. So the Father has installed the Son as the true king, and it is God's doing. He says, I myself have done it, and so we dare not approach it lightly. And it refers to Zion, God's holy hill. Again, in the near fulfillment, he's talking about an historic piece of real estate, right? The Jebusite city that David conquered and made his capital. We know it as Jerusalem. But the physical city of Jerusalem actually points to another reality. The author of Hebrews speaks of a heavenly Jerusalem in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. And so the earthly city of Jerusalem is being used metaphorically to point to another city, the ultimate fulfillment, a heavenly reality a better city, as the author of Hebrews puts it. And beyond the physical kingdom of David or Solomon, there is a better kingdom, the kingdom of God. Uh, when we speak about the kingdom of God, what we're talking about is the reign of God, the rule of God. Where God is king, there is his kingdom. Where people have bowed the knee to him as his loyal subjects, he is their king, and there is his kingdom. But we know it as an inaugurated kingdom. It is a kingdom that has been inaugurated and not yet consummated. It, it belongs to those who have bowed the knee to him, but not yet to everybody. It is already and not yet, as one author puts it. Already 
and not yet. It is already for those who have bowed the knee to Christ. It is not yet for those who will be subjected to him when he returns and extends his kingdom over the whole earth. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a great preacher of the last century, and he wrote a a wonderful book called The Invisible War, and I think he sums it up really well in a little quote I want to share with you. He said this, The great problems that leave the world in misery can be solved by God alone. This is the lesson that God must teach by man's repeated failures throughout all the ages of his history. Time must continue until it has been thoroughly demonstrated that there is no health or hope apart from God. Though it will mean the final chaos of all that man holds dear in his civilization, the total bankruptcy of ability of both Satan and men to do anything for man must be thoroughly and conclusively demonstrated. Did you catch the last part? The total bankruptcy of ability of both Satan and men to do anything for man must be thoroughly and conclusively demonstrated. In other words, God is allowing the folly of human solutions, the the ranting of three-year-olds, if you will, to run their course until they are shown to be completely futile. Think of your own journey from self-will to Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you probably had to come to the point of seeing that your own solutions weren't cutting it. You probably had to come to the point of seeing that all of the things you were trying to do to fix your own life weren't working. And that's what turned you to the one who had solutions that did work. But others, you see, will discover too late that their solutions were no good. When their lives come to an end or when Jesus returns, it's going to be too late. Christ is the true king. The Father has inaugurated his kingdom himself. And one day, that kingdom will extend over the entire world. And that leads us to the third stanza, the voice of the Son in verses 7 through 9. This is the Son speaking. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I will tell of the decree, it starts. Now a decree is an authoritative statement and this decree tells of the inauguration of this kingdom, the installation of this king. And we ask ourselves, well, when did that happen? When was Jesus inaugurated as king? He's co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, right? So when was he inaugurated as king? Well, we can ask ourselves how the New Testament writers understood this psalm. In Acts chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, we find this. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, today, or you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
So this inauguration, this installation, this coronation of King Jesus takes place at his resurrection and ascension. This he has fulfilled to us, he says, by raising Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 2. Philippians chapter 2 says something very similar to that. tells us that after Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the inauguration, the coronation of Jesus comes with his resurrection and his ascension. And as we understand this already and not yet dimension to the kingdom of God, we see that the risen and glorified Jesus is currently reigning in heaven and will one day extend his reign over a restored creation on earth. John uh, talks about this in Revelation chapter 19. The Apostle John will, uh, will quote Psalm 2 no fewer than three times in the book of Revelation. And in chapter 19, verse 15, he says this, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Do those words sound familiar? They're right from Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So Jesus reigns in heaven now. He will reign on earth when he comes again, what John was pointing to. The old hymn says it well, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. So the nations rage in vain. The Father laughs at their outbursts. And the Son, Jesus, reigns in heaven and will one day reign on earth. So what do we do with all of that? We find the answer in the fourth stanza. The voice of the Spirit, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, therefore, stanza four begins. In other words, based on the first three stanzas, I'm getting to my conclusion now. Here's, here's what I want you to do. And what he says he wants them to do is to be wise and be warned. And that is something that wisdom literature throughout the Old Testament repeats often. Be wise and be warned. Take these warnings. Put them into action in your lives. Who's being warned? Well, it's the kings and rulers of the earth. Same people who showed up ranting and railing against God in verse 2. He's warning them. The people who are living in defiance of God, people who want to live independently of him, people who want him to leave them alone, people who want to reign in God's place on the throne of their lives. And what's the warning? Verse 11, serve the Lord. Verse 12, kiss the Son. 
There is a wonderful mix of emotions in this final stanza of the hymn. And it reminds us of the respect that is due to the king of kings. It says, serve the Lord. And, and we think about glad service to the Lord. But it says, serve the Lord with fear. There is a respect that comes to him, the one we serve. It says, rejoice with trembling. Ah, what, a, what an amazing mix. It says, kiss the son, lest he become angry. It says, find your refuge in him. And we recognize that we find our refuge in him because he's the one we need refuge from. And he invites us to come. This mix of emotions is sometimes called reverential awe. It, it, it means we don't take God casually. We see the respect that is due him and we give it. I was... Um, in the office of one of my seminary professors once, uh, D.A. Carson, who's a brilliant New Testament scholar. And uh, there on his bookshelf, he had a little embroidered thing in a frame, and it simply said this, he is not a tame lion. He is not a tame lion. And my mind was instantly taken back to the Chronicles of Narnia. Those of us who are familiar with those books by C.S. Lewis recognize that. When the children came and met Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they were being told about Aslan the lion, um, he was being described to them, and I think it was little Lucy that said, is he quite safe? <laughs> Great question for little kid. Is he quite safe? And Mrs. Beaver said, safe? No. He's the king. He's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. And, and this idea of Aslan not being a safe, a tame lion goes throughout the rest of these seven wonderful books. And uh, we find it repeated on and on. And it reminds us that God is not safe, but he's good. God is on the throne. He is not a tame lion. He is on his throne. And we can bow a knee to him now or later, but every knee will bow. God's wrath demonstrates his final justice. And to the evil, it is the only side of God that they see. But the psalmist invites us to take refuge in him because there really is no refuge from him. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. God is on his throne. He is in charge, and nothing, nothing can change that. He is sovereign, and those who know him can rest in that assurance. Nothing can come to us here on earth that doesn't pass through his hands first. So, friends, our e L-A-X, right? Relax. And if Packers fans everywhere can relax because Aaron said to, no less can we as followers of Christ relax because he is on the throne. He is in control. He is sovereign. Working out purposes that go beyond what we can see or understand. And kings and rulers 
and presidents and philosophies and political correctness and persecution and terrorism may come, but they will all go because we have a king who is sovereign over all of it, working out his eternal purposes, a king who will one day step back onto the stage of human history and bring down the curtain. And on that day, the lamb will become the lion. And the opportunity before us now is to kiss the Son, to embrace Him, to come to Him, to find our refuge in Him because there is no refuge from Him. And when you belong to Him, nothing can shake you. He is in control. He is the King. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the assurances of Your Word that speak about your control over all of creation, that you are working out your purposes even now, even as three-year-olds and grown-up three-year-olds rant and rave against you, you are still in control. You are still working out your purposes. Help us, Father, to find strength and comfort and encouragement and courage in that as we seek to live lives that glorify you. So we give ourselves to you for what you will do this week through us. Father, we just invite you to work out your purposes in us and let us glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we close.